Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled Popes, and we begin with a quote from Pope Leo I in his fifth sermon. Quote, It is true that all bishops taken singly preside each with his proper solicitude over his own flock and know that they will have to give account of the sheep committed to them. To us, and by us, Leo means the popes, to us, however, is committed the common care of all, and no single bishop's administration is other than a part of our task. Unquote. The history of the popes, also known as the bishops of Rome, could easily constitute its own study and podcast. Stephen Guerra has done that very thing. You can access it via iTunes and the History Podcasters website. Our treatment here will be far more summary and brief. Several of the factors that elevated the Church at Rome to prominence by A.D. 200 were still pertinent in the 4th and 5th centuries. Theologically, while at the dawn of the 3rd century Rome claimed an overriding apostolic authority derived from both Peter and Paul, by the 5th century, Paul had been dropped. His historical role in the Church at Rome was forgotten in favor of the textual argument based on three key New Testament passages that seemed to assign Peter a special place as de facto leader of the church under Christ. For those taking notes, the passages are Matthew 16, Luke 22, and John 21. As noted in previous episodes, another factor lending weight to Rome's claim as premier church was the steadfastness of the bishops of Rome during the Arian controversy. Rome simply maintained a repu- Rome simply maintained a reputation for orthodoxy. It's interesting that the bishops of Rome never attended one of the ecumenical councils. By doing so, they ostensibly avoided the political maneuvers that often accompanied the councils, as we saw with Cyril and Nestorius, and the nasty schemes that embroiled the churches of Alexandria and Antioch. Administratively, Rome adhered to the tradition of a local and provincial synod twice a year. This group of conservative bishops was the vehicle through which their leader, the Bishop of Rome, acted. This stood in stark contrast to the Synod at Constantinople, held only when some need pressed, and was attended only by those bishops inclined to show up. When they did, they held varying loyalties between Alexandria, Antioch, and Constantinople. You remember the Robbers' Council at Ephesus, where it became a bloody brawl. Eastern consuls went so far as to alter each other's creeds and conclusions. With this confusion in the East, it's little wonder that Rome appeared a bastion of stability. Geographically, by reason of his location, the Roman bishop had a voice that was heard far and wide. Keep in mind that Rome was the only patriarchate in the West. And politically, while still highly symbolic, Rome was no longer the political center of the West. Milan and then later Ravenna were the capitals of the Western Empire. With the royal court's absence, Rome's bishop became the city's most important figure. Likely for this reason alone, the associations of imperial Rome began to surround the church's government. The term pope derives from a word used by Greek children for their father, papa. It was first used in Latin the beginning of the 3rd century as an informal title for the bishop of Carthage. From there, the bishops of Alexandria picked it up and began to be called Pope a few decades later. It's still the title of the Coptic Patriarch of Alexandria. The first known use of the word for the Bishop of Rome 
comes from an inscription in 303 for Marcellinus. But a lack of attribution going forward over the next decades means the word was not a common title till much later in the 4th century. The title then became almost exclusively associated in the West with the Roman bishop from the 6th century on. In covering how the Bishop of Rome became the Pope, we need to look at how it was that other bishops came to regard him, not just as first among equals, but as someone ordained by God to be an authority over them, someone they owed obedience to as God's earthly representative. While a growing number of bishops came to that conclusion, it was by no means something that everyone acknowledged. The issue even left to the great rift between the Eastern and Western churches. So let's track in outline how the bishop at Rome became Pope. In the mid-4th century, during the tenure of the Roman bishop Julius, the third canon of the Council of Sardica in 343 established the rule that a bishop who'd been deposed could appeal to the bishop of Rome. This was an important step in the recognition of his appellate authority. In the mid-4th century, the most important bishop of Rome for advancing the claims of his see was Damasus. He became bishop after a contested election in which there was bloodshed between his supporters and those of his rival, Ursinus. Damasus made regular references to Rome as the, quote, apostolic see, unquote, and spoke of the, quote, primacy of the Roman see, unquote, on the basis of Matthew 16, verse 18. Damasus sanctified the burial sites of previous Roman bishops in the catacombs, marking them with ornate inscriptions. He reformed the Latin liturgy and commissioned Jerome to revise the Latin Bible. Instead of adopting the posture and accoutrements of a humble shepherd of God's flock, Damasus affected an imperial aura that was reminiscent of an emperor. So exalted was he, that the pagan historian Aminus Marcellinus hinted that he might become a Christian if he could be the Bishop of Rome. At the end of the 4th century, Bishop Sericius regarded even his letters as being authoritative edicts, styling them as, quote, apostolic. Shortly after that, Innocent I declared that Sardica's third canon giving the Roman bishop appellate power was retroactive to the Council of Nicaea in 325. Innocent said that the church's highest teaching authority belonged to Rome. He extended his authority beyond the realm of the Western Empire into the province of Illyricum and started referring to the Roman bishop as vicar. Boniface I prohibited appeals beyond Rome. Leo I, also known as Leo the Great, can rightly be referred to as the, well, first pope in that he embodied what that title meant for most today. He combined authority over councils and emperors with the idea that the Roman bishop was Peter's successor in constructing his theory of the papacy. As we saw in the episode a while back on Leo, his third sermon, delivered on the first anniversary of his election, explained the Petrine theory in terms of Roman law of inheritance. Leo argued that Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom, so he had authority over the other apostles. He also claimed, after long tradition, that Peter was the first bishop of Rome, and his authority was passed on to subsequent bishops of Rome. Therefore, Leo reasoned, the perpetual authority of Peter is found in the Roman bishop. He dispensed with earlier views of church leadership and made the authority of bishops dependent on the pope. Now, since this is a church history and not a theology or ecclesiology podcast, 
I'm not going to go into what I, as an evangelical Protestant, find tenuous in Leo's positions. What's important for our purposes here is to realize that now the Bishop of Rome stands between Jesus and other bishops, and Christians in general. When Leo's tome was read at the Council of Chalcedon, the bishops echoed his claim with the acclamation that Peter spoke through Leo. Chalcedon was unusual in that it gave assent to Rome's teaching authority, something previously unknown and later seldom acknowledged in the East. While Rome's primacy was taken as fact in the West, it was a different story in the East. The Council of Chalcedon ranked the Eastern capital as next to Rome in terms of authority, but Rome never accepted that canon, concerned that by doing so it would degrade Rome's claim to absolute authority. Leo drew a comparison between the two natures of Jesus and the two parts of the empire, that is, the religious and the civil. Specifically, he referred to the priesthood and the kingship. He compared Peter and Paul as founders of the Roman church to Romulus and Remus as the founders of the city of Rome. He presented the Pax Christianum as a counterpart to the Pax Romanum. Leo's policy towards barbarians was to civilize and sanctify them. They called him the Council of God. Leo negotiated with the Hun commander Attila to get them to turn back from Rome. He even claimed the title of Pontifex Maximus, chief bridge builder, the title that had been worn by the chief priest of Roman paganism. He was the first Roman bishop to be buried in St. Peter's. It's clear that most of the powers and privileges of future popes were seen in Leo's methods and policies. He acted as a head of Rome's civil government checked the advance of barbarians, enforced his authority on distant bishops, preached doctrine, and intervened at Chalcedon. While Augustine provided the intellectual substance for the medieval Western Church, Leo laid down its institutional form. At the end of the 5th century, Pope Galatius took Leo's papal theory even further. He foresaw that the Emperor Martian's claim to being a spiritual authority and kind of priest-king at the Council of Chalcedon was inordinately dangerous. Galatius said that the Old Testament functions of prophet, priest, and king were fulfilled by Jesus Christ alone as the God-man. Among mere humans, these functions must be kept separate. In the kingdom of God, priests were superior in authority to kings. Now, this position became a major point of tension throughout the Middle Ages. It will be the crucible that produces much of the history of Europe for the next several hundred years. Pope Galatius continued the claim that it was the office of the Roman Church to judge other churches, but could be judged by no human tribunal. By the end of the 5th century, the Western Church virtually equated the kingdom of Christ with the Church. In the East, the ideal of a Christianized empire continued on. The reign of the Eastern Emperor Justinian seemed a confirmation of that. As we end this episode, I want to take a little time to clarify some words that anyone who studies church history is bound to encounter. It's some of the titles that are used for church leaders. Let's sort out who they refer to. I'm referring to the words pastor, priest, monk, bishop, archbishop, metropolitan, and patriarch. What follows is by no means a technical definition for these things. This is more of a, a practical and simplified working definition. So understand it right off. These are also words that have been fluid in definition over time. Pastor is a good New Testament word that's synonymous with the words elder and bishop or overseer. 
All those words refer to the same office and ministry in a local church, not someone who oversees other pastor-elder bishops. Elder refers to a man's maturity and character as morally and spiritually fit to lead a local church. Bishop refers to his office as a spiritual authority of an overseer, while pastor refers to his task. Pastor is the same word as shepherd, and so he leads, feeds, and protects God's flock. A hundred or so years after the apostles, pastors were regularly called bishops because they oversaw a team of fellow elders and deacons who served God by serving his people. We ought to think of bishops as equivalent to senior or lead pastors in today's local churches. Now, keeping to that analogy, imagine there aren't several dozen churches of different denominational stripes in your town. There's just one church led by a senior pastor bishop. That church then sends out several younger pastors to plant churches in surrounding communities. They're going to look to their sending church and its bishop as a kind of spiritual parent. And if they in turn send out even more pastors, that original sending church and pastor takes on a highly respected role of providing guidance, not just for his congregation, but for all of the works that they spun off. So he becomes the archbishop. What happens over the first few hundred years of church history was that five churches became recognized as centers of church life and authority, one in the west at Rome and four in the east, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and a fourth that varied from time from Jerusalem to Caesarea and the city of Carthage. The bishops of these five churches were at first affectionately referred to as patriarchs because they were regarded as spiritual fathers to their surrounding provinces. Over time, that title morphed from being merely an unofficial term of affection to an outright title spelled with a capital P, Patriarch. The title Metropolitan was applied to the bishops of other large cities and their surrounding provinces beyond the five patriarchates. Metropolitan is essentially synonymous with an archbishop. A priest was someone who was officially ordained by a bishop to serve communion and baptize converts. That, of course, was a small part of his overall pastoral duties. Monks were people who devoted themselves to the service of God rather than secular employment. They may or may not be ordained as priests. Now, typically, monks lived alongside other monks in a cloistered community called a monastery. And again, this is a simplified description of these roles. I hope it helps those of you that are doing your own reading of church history. Till next time. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.